Thank you for tuning in to the podcast of Western Heights Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. We exist to exalt Christ, equip the church, and engage the community. For more info, visit whbcwaco.org. Let me see if I can flesh this out. You know, I'm about to approach a, a big year in my life. I'm going to be about to be 61. I know, it doesn't look like it, does it? It doesn't look like I'm 61. But I must say, I'm 61 physically, but not mentally. Okay? Mentally, I'm, I'm 12, 13. Okay? So the point is, is that, so, so you, you become concerned about this. Thank you for being concerned. He said, Pastor, we've noticed that you put on a little punch. that you can come back and come from Illinois. You gained a little weight. You know, you know we call that Mexican food department. That's what we call it. Mexican food. They didn't have either one of those in Illinois. I know. We, we were deprived. We were living in a, in a barren land. But you'll get a little concerned. You say, yo, Pastor, we notice that you're getting a little flabby. You're getting a little out of shape. And, and we don't want you to have a weight problem, and we don't want you to have furniture problems as well. Uh, so you invest in a, a book, a bodybuilding book for me. And you come to me and say, Pastor Bruce, we want to know we're concerned about you. We want you to take this book. This book will change the body. This book is in close to We want you to take this I look at it and I say, great, thank you so much for being concerned about me. And so I take a six-month sabbatical and I take this book and I go out and I read it. And I spend time with it. And after six months, I come back and this is what I look like. I look exactly the same as when I did it on that. You go, what happened? Didn't you read the book? I said, yeah, I read the book. Great. Loved it. Best book ever in my life. I mean, I, I meditated on it. I thought about it. I highlighted sections of it. I even memorized key sections in the in the book. He said, I even started a, a study of the book and we broke down and we studied it and analyzed every phrase. I even did a, a study, an etymology study of every word in the book. Love it. Greatest book ever written. What happened? What happened? You say, well, the book was not written. How many times do we read the Word of God, memorize it, highlight it, and all this stuff, and it never makes a change? We do it all the time. We do it. You know, we have we give awards here in church. But in church, we give awards for memorizing Scripture. Right? How many times do we give awards for doing Scripture? We give we give praise for those who can, can memorize portions. Never give a warning to those without doing We have a have a warning. James says we're not just the listeners, not just the audience. We are the doers of the word. And then he gives us three aspects specifically that we need to focus on in these two verses we look at. He says first we are to restrain our speech. Now, this ties back into verse 19, where James says that we ought to be slow to speak. Uh, I think James knows something about human nature. I think he's writing this for me. Uh, be slow to speak. But for those of you who know me, I have this incredible, incredible ability uh, to, to, to speak before I think. I think it's my ADHD because I am going 90 miles an hour like this constant. And you say something, I'm already on my next thought of where I'm going to go. So I have to intentionally slow down, slow down, and 
don't believe I have ADHD, my wife sits and watches TV. And I'll sit there. She has to reach over and touch my leg because I can't keep my legs. It's just constantly going like this. That's why I move around. Uh, I, I can't be still. So sometimes in the process of doing that, I, I, I speak before I think. And then I go back and say, that's a pretty good thought either. So, yeah. so, but the, so he says we need to be slow to speak. I think James knows that sometimes we want to be heard. And we say a lot of words. And I think maybe he's talking about speaking without thinking, or maybe he's just talking about speaking too much. Whichever one, he says, we've got to be slow to speak. He says, this is a serious matter, because in every chapter of the book of James, James says something about the tongue. He says something about our speech. As a matter of fact, one of the most uh, clearest, clearest passages of Scripture that talks about tongue James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. We'll deal with that in several weeks. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on our talk today. But, but, but James says we've got to be careful with this thing we call the tongue and with our speech. Uh, notice what James says in verse 26. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Notice what he says. This person seems to be religious. He considers himself religious. He seems to be hope you don't have anybody in this church in your mind, uh, but, but, but you, you can see him. You get the impression from looking at this man that he's religious, that he's holy, or looking at this woman, they're religious, or that they're, they're holy. You know, they, they come to Sunday school. They come to the worship service. They, they give. They're even good tithers. Uh, they appear in all matters. They appear to be religious. But James says there's something wrong with them. They don't even know it. But there's one thing wrong with them is that they can't control the tongue what they're about to say. He says, because they can't control the tongue, whether they deceive themselves. They think they're religious, they think they're holy, when in reality, they're deceiving themselves. Where do we get this in the scripture? What did Jesus say? He said, what's in your heart will reveal itself by what you say, by what you do. So James is saying, we've got to learn to control our tongue, to keep a tight rein on our tongue. When our speech is not controlled, all our religious activities are thrown out the window. How can we say, you're to have patience when we don't have patience with someone else? How can we say, we ought to love one another when we don't love our brothers or sisters in Christ? How can, how can we say that, that we love God when we curse God with our own tongue? The Bible says that. It says, with your own tongue, you praise God and you curse Him. So when you do that, people begin to say, they're suspicious of your of your, your religion. They're suspicious of who you are and you're deceiving yourself. It's hard for us to grasp. You know, how in the world can our tongue keep us from being saved? Notice what he says. This is an individual who thinks he is he's saved. He says he considers himself religious. He considers himself right. This is a person who thinks he is, but James says he's deceiving himself. He makes this false assumption that as long as his actions are right, then it does not matter what his tongue says. There's a great illustration of this in Luke chapter 18. You don't have to turn there, just listen to what I say. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. Get the top of me because I'm looking down on y'all right now. <laughs> Maybe I need to come down here and read this. Okay. No, no, that's not what he's talking about, okay? 
looked at Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I give. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. A religious person thought he was religious, looked down upon the sinner, the tax collector. And God says, sinner or righteous than the religious person. This is what we see. You know what Jesus said about those type of religions? Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus said that these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me. That's the word of Jesus. I'm the word of Jesus. That's the word of Jesus. These people worship. No, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. In other words, I do not receive their worship. It's hard word for us to embrace. But James and Jesus say the time is important. On one hand, we praise God, and on the other hand, we curse man. Because we can't do that. The fact that James does not give us a, a, a certain criteria or certain areas that we need to control a tongue, I think we can say it's every, every form. Sarcasm. Your anger, uh, slander, bitterness, gossip, and boasting. Now I'm getting personal. I start talking about gossip. You know what gossip really is, don't you? It's more about prayer requests. That's what it is. That's what gossip is. If you hear about souls, oh, we didn't pray for you. I've always said gossip is the sin of choice for Baptists. Many times Baptists preach preaching gossip is really getting close to home. James says we've got to control our tongues. Not only do we need to restrain our speech, what else he says is that we need to have outward compassion. He says real evidence of our religious practices can be seen in what we do. Unlike the person who talks about love and talks about dedication and then does nothing to help a fellow man. James is, is concerned about hearing to the neglect of doing. Everybody's hearing, you're auditing, but you're not doing anything about it. Listen, people would never care how much we know if they do not know how much we care. They're not going to give us the time of day if we don't care for them. James said you've got to become a doer of the word. You've got to demonstrate it in the way you live. Look at what he says in chapter 20, verse 27, the first part. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Now there are some that take a legalistic approach to scripture. They say, okay, we've got to take care of widows, got to take an orphan family. That's it. We've got pure religion because that is what we are doing. I don't think that's the best way to understand this passage. I think James is, they are representative of everyone who has need. Because if all we have to do is take care of widows and orphans, then we can focus on building nursing homes and building orphanages. We've done everything. That's all we have to do. But what do we do with the sick? What do we do with the homeless? What do we do with the hungry? What do we do with those in prison? What do we do with those who are thirsty? Jesus told us that we ought to take care of those. He said, but when you've done it under one of the least of these brothers of mine, you've done it under me. 
So obviously we've got to take what James says and what Jesus says and we say, well, James is not being excluded, slowing it down to these two. It's basically a statement, and he's saying about these two, why? Because they're the, they're the ones that need the most help. In the first century, when the Bible was written, these individuals, if they didn't have a husband, they didn't have a father, they were left to the charity of other people. And they didn't have a social net like we have today. He said, you've got to, you've got to help these individuals. Probably the best story of this is the revealed in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus tells the story of a man who was on his way from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And on his way to Jericho, he is bugged by a group of robbers. They beat him and they left him to die and they robbed him. So he's laying over in the ditch and the religious man, the Pharisee, the Baptist preacher, he comes by and he sees the man in the ditch. The Bible's clear. He sees him but then he walks on the other side of the road and passes the Bible. At the same time, the song director comes by. The song leader, the Levite, he was the guy that kind of administered things in the worship service. He comes by, he notices the man on the side, may even stop and, and he wants it. He's there. Take care of it. Maybe just say that. But he looks, but he too passes by on the other side. And then the Bible, Jesus puts a twist. Dylan is the dreaded Samaritan, that half person. He wasn't Jewish, he wasn't Greek, he was neither. He was a half person. You can hear Jesus tell the story. He says, and a Samaritan half person. You can hear the crowd going, yes, 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 yes. his life. What did he do? He wasn't afraid to mingle with sinners, and he wasn't afraid to mingle with tax collectors. He was criticized. He was ridiculed for it. Uh, he was put down. He was accused. But Jesus ministered to the down and out. Jesus ministered to the hungry. He gave them something to eat. He ministered to the sick, and he healed them. He, he looked at the hurting, and he helped them. He had compassion on the people. And the Bible says because he had compassion on the people, he saw them as they were like sheep without a shepherd. And it led him to do something about them. And he became involved in their lives. Jesus was our example. I want you to look at the passage again. Notice what it says, that we are to look after orphans and widows. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say give them money. It doesn't say throw money at the situation. It says to look after orphans and widows. Looking after is more than throwing money at them. And this is one of the reasons, and I know I'm treading on thin ice here. Okay, I know that. But this is one of the reasons I am against the social welfare system. The social welfare system gives a hand out, not a hand up. Marvin Olasky, back in 1992, wrote a book. Uh, and, and I read the book. Um, and, and it's a 
great book. It was called The, the Tragedy of American Compassion. And though it was written in 1992, so 27 years ago, it is still relevant today. This is basically his thesis is this. Bad charity drives out good charity. This is what he said. This is a summary. Good charity offers practical assistance, but at the same time, it requires personal accountability. It is the kind of ministry churches can provide by encouraging long-term spiritual change instead of simply offering short-term help. Bad charity is the kind of government programs too often provide, a hand out without a hand up. In other words, although material assistance is provided, nothing is done to foster a sense of individual responsibility or to address the structural causes of poverty. He goes on to say, good charity requires active Christian involvement in meeting local needs. The fear is that we have grown so used to depending on the government to solve social problems that we, are no, that we no longer have the skills or the interest to reach out. We can call it the tragedy of Christian compassion and unwillingness to make a costly investment in caring for others. We don't have to help anybody because the government is going to do We have neglected our biblical responsibility to take care of those who are left in the government. It's a place of the government, but it's not all of the government. Jesus says if we don't have compassion, we ought to involve ourselves in the lives of people. We'll take care of the sick. We'll take care of the hungry. We'll take care of the naked. We'll take care of the elderly. We ought to visit those in prison. Yes, we ought to visit the church. We ought to do all these things. Why do we do that? Here's this. They listen to me almost five years. Some of them long. Five years. Here's the reason. We don't do it to clothe the naked, feed the hungry, give a shelter to the homeless, give water to the prison. as a means to share the gospel. If all we do is meet the physical needs and we fall short to play the gospel, we have failed. We have failed. Because all we've done is we sent them to hell without Jesus. We call them to sin in So yes, we do the social ministry, but we do it as a means to share the gospel of Jesus. Because it's in the gospel of Jesus Christ they find their home. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that they learn to be content in all things, whether they're poor or whether they're rich. They learn because they, they learn that their relationship is not stemmed by what they own or what they possess, but it's in the Jesus Christ. So that's what we ought to do. This is why James brings this out. This is what pure religion looks like. This is what it's supposed to do. So we're supposed to have restrain our speech, we're supposed to show outward compassion, Finally, we need to have inward purity. Look at the last part of verse 27. Uh, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. He says there's also an inward quality to true religion. No matter how busy we may be in witnessing and ministering to the down and outs and the up and ins, we need to avoid sin in our lives. We, become, we can become so involved in, in doing ministry, we can become so involved in doing missions, that we forget the necessity of being. So we're so busy being a, a human doing, we forget to be a human being. That we ought to be a Christian in a relationship with Jesus. And we serve.
concern of others, how did that relate to There's a great illustration of this in Luke chapter 10. Or, uh, or, Rachel alluded to it in her study in Luke chapter 10, verse 38. It said that Jesus' disciples were on their way. He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to her. Any Marthas in here? They think of her, Martha. Okay. How about this next one? She had a sister called Mary. Any Marys? No Marys, I hear. She sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left, left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. You know, Jesus is serious. You know, Martha, Martha. You know my, my mom was the Bruce Keith. Bruce Keith. She would use the middle name. But he probably didn't know her middle name for Martha. Martha. Lord answered. You were worried and upset about many things. But only one thing is needed. Mary had chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away. Now look, Jesus is not condemning Martha, he's not condemning, not condemning Mary. He's simply making a point. Sometimes we need spiritual Sometimes we need to be revitalized. Listen, we need Martha's in the church. Amen? We need Martha's in the church. But guess what? It's okay to be married. It's okay to be married. Matter of fact, we need both. We need Martha and we need Mary in the church. And in fact, you need to be both. You need to be Martha, and you need to be Mary. There's a time when you need to be out there serving and serving and serving, but there's sometimes you need to step back and you need to be refreshed. You need to be revitalized. But you know what happens? We get out there and we get to working, we get to serving, and we get to ministry, and we neglect to find some time for private expression, like Bible study, like prayer, and like worship. I heard somebody today saying, Say, well, well, we're going we're to do church this morning. I said, oh, no, no, no. We ain't doing the church. We are the church. We're going to worship. This is not church. This is where the church gathers to worship. Or as we like to say, gathers to exalt Christ. There's a time when you need to do that. You need to exalt Christ, and you need to be engaged. You need to be equipped so that then you can go out and engage the community. So what happens, we have to we serve, we serve, we serve, we serve then we become drained and we become beaten down and we become useless and what we do is we bring shame to the name that we say we proclaim. And we're not doing anybody any good. However, it should be noted that James does not say we ought to isolate ourselves from the world. That's not what he says. He said don't become polluted by the world. He said we got to be in the world. We're just not supposed to let the world influence us. Don't let the world pollute us. Don't let the world affect our lives. Now, there are some that believe we ought, to, we ought to be separate from the world. Be ye separate. Separate from the world. That's not what it means. It means you ought to be unique. You ought to be special. You ought to be holy. You're not like the world, but you're in the world. So James is saying that don't allow the influence of the world to influence your life. That's not what the Scripture says that we're to be separated from the world. It's impossible to avoid the world. You can't do it. God sent us into the world to be missionaries to the world. We're not called to live as hermits and isolate ourselves from the world. There's a great illustration of this in the movie. Uh, it's the second movie of the Lord of the Rings, the Twin Towers, or the Two Towers. Twin Towers, that's a big one. was a big one. The Two Towers. Uh, in, in, the, in the movie, uh, 
Mary and Pippin, the two hobbits, get separated from Big Crown and they, they wound up in the, in the forest. And in the forest, they're scooped up, I think the inks is what they're called. It. And whatever, it's tree herders is what they're called. I know it's weird, okay? It's an allegory. It's an allegory, okay? It's a story within a story, okay? They're, they're scooped up by the trees. And, and so Mary and Pippin are beginning to explain to them what's going on. And, Says, oh no, we're not orcs, we're hobbits, we're common folk, we're simple folk. He said, don't you know what's going on in the world? We don't know anything going on in the world. See, what's going on in the world does not affect us. And then they make the statement, say, but you're a part of the world, aren't you? And that kind of causes the trees for a moment to think. And they said, if it doesn't affect us, we're not going to be involved. And so they persuade Mary and Pippin, to, they persuade them to take them uh, right into the heart of the battle. They kind of trick the trees a little bit. And as the trees merge from the forest and they look out and see the fire, they look at all the trees that cut down. The big tree herder says, I knew some of these trees and they were acorns and knots. And then he realized the problem the Lord had come to him. He said, Now we go forward against those who attack them. The trees did not want to fight. That's the way a lot of things are in the church. We don't want to engage in the world until it begins to affect us. This is my prayer. We wait to engage the world until it begins to affect us. It will be too late. It will be too late for us as a body of believers. It will be too late for sharing. I've been sharing this for a long time. Several weeks ago, I shared that for the first time in the history of America, there's less people worshiping on the Sunday. First time ever, less people worship on Sunday. We can sit back and say, well, it doesn't affect us. It doesn't affect us. Yeah, it does. Look at our attendance. It affects us. It affects every church. Here in Waco, the large churches get larger, the small churches die, and the medium sized churches are just swapping members. Says we are to not allow the world to pollute us. He talks about the world. He talks about everything is in opposition to God. Everything that opposes God's standards, everything that opposes God's, God's regulations. Listen, those things in the world may not be bad. They may not be sinful. They may not be harmful to us in themselves. But in certain circumstances, they can be in opposition to God and His world. They can be. Basically, the world is anything that leads us down a path of sin and disobedience. It says, call, call, call yourself to be loyal to God. You've got to be loyal. As you're out there working, as you're out there serving, as you're out there ministering to people, make sure that you, you're controlling your impulses. Make sure you're living according to the standards that God has. Practical religion. Practical religion has a balance. There's a 
a proper time for spiritual edification is also a time for spiritual exercise. We are exercising faith. You have to have that balance. We are, we are warned in the scriptures against a complete attention to ourselves. Yet at the same time, we are told to look out for the needs of others. They go hand in hand. It's not either or. It's both and. What did you say in verse 27? Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in the distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted. I want to have time for prayer. I have a great thing for come up and lead us to close the song. Perhaps God has challenged you in your thinking of your service to Him. You know, I've always said you don't have to wait for the church to create opportunities. Fact, I've always been, I've kind of taken the Moses approach. I go to Pharaoh and I say, what did Moses say to Pharaoh? He said, let my people go that they may serve God. This is what I've been trying to do for five years with the Christ Baptist Church. Let people go that they may serve God. But tie them up in endless leaves and commitments and let them get out and do the work of the church. Let them go. Let my people go that they may serve God. I say the same thing to you. Let God get out there and serve God. Do a ministry and say, Pastor, we had great success in this year, this year. Let me tell you about it. Hey, what's the church? The church is excited about it. Thank God for the service. Don't wait. Go do it. Go do it. I'd rather you make a mistake. Now you're Find the one that can never be. Thank God for the Lord. Lord, I just don't want to be a 